I recently uh, read a, uh, a story about a woman who was killed by her pet tiger. Um, she was mauled to death. And a tragic story, but, but what sane person has a pet tiger? I mean, tigers are, by definition, carnivores, meat-eating beasts that stalk their prey, and, well, they eat them for dinner. A tiger, well, well a tiger will always be a tiger. So who in their right mind decides to make a tiger their pet? You see, that's just it. No one takes in an adult tiger and allows them to roam around the house just like the family cat or dog would. No, what must be true about this situation is that the tiger that mauled this pet owner to death, well, didn't start out so fierce and scary. He was a small, furry little cub. He would have been so cute, right? With his large paws that barely fit on his uh, small body. And all you girls are thinking about the cute little dog or pet that you've seen with those paws now. The, the gal uh, must have found him and thought, oh, he's so cute and cuddly. And he would have purred and rubbed his little uh, head on her cheek. He may have playfully nibbled his little tiger teeth on her hand. And a bond was formed with the woman and she decided she was going to take him home. Maybe she named him Tigger or Sweet Pea. We're not sure. But day after day, after day, after day, the tiger lived and grew and grew until his natural instincts could no longer be held back and he mauled the woman to death. That's, that's what sin does in our life. Actually, the, the, the Bible speaks about that in James chapter 1, saying this about sin. It says, but each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desires and enticed. Then after the desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. Louis Giglio, who is a minister and an author and pastor, um, wrote a book called Goliath Must Fall. And in that book, he speaks about those pets. And I'll tell you that a portion of today's message is derived from this book. But he says this, he says, it's not much different with our giants. The habits, the behaviors, the faulty beliefs, the same old broken ways we're accommodating in our lives. These pets, well, they started out as cute and cuddly little babies. They didn't look like they'd do us any harm. They were comforting, reassuring. We formed these bonds with these pets and we gave them a warm place to stay in our minds, our hearts, and our behaviors. But these pets have grown. They're showing their true colors, and they aren't pets anymore. They're savage killers, and we desperately want to rid ourselves of these giants. But how? You know, the giants in your life, uh, the things that are sucking the very life out of you, your addictions, your anxieties, your fears, your problems, your sins, they all didn't start out as killers, right? But when they rear their heads now, it seems as if, you, as if you've lost all control, right? The alcoholic didn't start off with a whiskey bottle at 7 a.m. hung over from the night before. He didn't start off with a case of beer each night. No, he started off with, with one drink that led to two, that led to three, and so on and so forth. The drug addict didn't start shooting heroin that he had bought with the money that he had stolen from his family and loved ones so that he could uh, he could get his fill or his fix on his addiction. No, he started off with a drag from a blunt passed around at a party with a few buddies, which led to another, which led to something else, which led to, to more. The worker who was seeking approval, seeking acceptance in his job, he, he didn't start off with 80 plus hour weeks where he never saw his spouse or his children. No, they started off with a small taste of success, a few pats on the back, and that led to another and another and more. The man or woman that is addicted to pornography, that 
Well, they didn't start off with the desire to have every waking minute filled with this corruption of sexuality with magazines, sex shops, phone apps, and internet surfing. They started with a second glance, and then another glance, and then another glance, and so on and so forth. You name it, your giant, whatever it may be, your pride, your anger, your, your, your comfort, your greed, whatever the drug, whatever the sin is that is constantly holding you by the neck and taking your life, uh, that's, how it, that's how it happens. It, that's how deception works. It starts off as something that we don't see as all that bad, and then slowly it builds into something. That's what sin does. It slowly destroys us until we either give up or we give in. This morning, I'm not sure what your giant is, but I am sure that there are giants standing and trying to destroy the lives of people in this room and lives that you care about. If you want to turn with me to 1 Samuel chapter 17, as you may have guessed um, by some of the talk about giants, we're going to be looking at the story of David and Goliath that is found in, in chapter 17 of the book of 1 Samuel. It's on page 227 in the Bibles in front of you. But let me, let me just set the scene a little bit for you. Right. God had made a covenant with the Israelite people, one that has been passed down from generation to generation. And God had proved himself to his, his people, just as he has proved himself to you and I. And as we enter the scene with the Israelites' armies, um, they're getting ready to face off against the Philistines, right? Uh, a people that had worshipped a false god, a people that had been a pain in the side uh, for the Israelites for years. Now, we spoke briefly about uh, this situation a few weeks ago, right? They're, they're squaring off in this valley of Elah, one army up on one hill, the other up on the, uh, on the other side of the hill. And there's this epic battlefield down that's going to happen in this, this valley, now, the history of the Israelites has been chock full of God's provision and strength, right? God had led them out of Egypt, out of slavery. He had parted the Red Sea, stood it up on its end, let them walk through on dry ground. And then once they were all through, he sent the waters flooding back down and taking the Egyptian army out with them. He, he had led them through the wilderness with a, a pillar of fire at night and a pillar of cloud in the day. When thirsty... He gave them something to drink. When hungry, he made it rain manna down for them. He had seen them through the wilderness and to the promised land. And as they crossed the Jordan River, he had delivered Jericho, a highly fortified city, to their hands with the shouts and steps of obedience. God had proven himself to his people. But these people had forgotten God. And now, in this moment, as they square off against the Philistines, one man, one man makes them slink back in fear. Listen to what it says, starting in verse 3 of our chapter this morning. It says, The Philistines occupied one hill, and the Israelites another, with the valley between them. His height was six feet in a span. He had a bronze helmet on his head and wore a, a coat of scale armor of bronze weighing some 5,000 shekels. On his legs were bronze greaves, and a bronze javelin was slung on his back. His spear shaft was like the weaver's rod, and its iron point weighed 600 shekels. His shield bearers went ahead of him, and Goliath stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, Why do you come out and line up for battle? Am I not a Philistine, and are you not the servants of Saul? Choose a man and have him come down to me. If he is able to fight and kill me, we will become your subjects." But if I overcome him and kill him, you will become our subjects and serve us. Then the Philistines said, This day I defy the armies of Israel. Give me a man and let us fight each other. On hearing the Philistines' words, Saul and all of the Israelites were dismayed and terrified. So for 40 days, 
the armies of God, of the living God, sat in fear and trembling because of one man. The people of God who had the power of God were dismayed and terrified. You know, in Christ, we are the people of God. Tom, Tom read that this morning to us from 1 Peter uh, chapter 2, right? It says, but you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possessions. And why over the last several weeks, we have talked about victory, why we have sung songs about the resurrecting king, resurrecting me, why we post scriptures of love and grace around us. I think that oftentimes our daily lives represent something different. Too many of us are allowing the giants in this world to taunt us and to leave us dismayed and terrified and questioning God. You see, your giant taunts you, but Goliath must fall. Oh, man. I I wish I could tell you that I have all the answers to this, but I don't. You see, I've been taunted by my giants in my life before, and sometimes even still. And while I have seen my God prove himself to me time after time, while I have devoted my life to the ministry of the gospel, to a a giant squashing God, all too often I find myself in the same place as many of you, with the giant of my sin, with the giant of my struggles and my problems, taunting my life one lie at a time. One God-defying deception at a time. And like the army of Israel, like you, I find myself... um, standing in front of this giant, demoralized, immobilized, and oftentimes sunk. This, this cannot be. We cannot proclaim victory if at the same time we allow a giant to own us. That's what Galatians 5 verse 1 says about freedom. It says, it is for freedom that Christ has set us free. So stand firm then and do not let yourselves be burdened. Get that? Be burdened or taunted again by the yoke of slavery. The giant is taunting you, and the giant must fall. Back to our scripture this morning in 1 Samuel 17. In verse 16, it says, For 40 days the Philistine came forward every morning and every evening, and he took his stand. So day after day, the giant is owning the people of God. Then into verse 17. Now Jesse said to his son David, Take this ephah of roasted grain and this, this loaf of bread for your brothers and hurry to their camp. So David... The youngest brother of of eight, the one who everyone would have least expected to do something great for God, um, left his normal duties as shepherd, and he heads to the battle lines. Now, not to fight, though, right? He heads to the battle lines to bring the soldiers some food, some snacks. So David approaches. He quickly drops the food off at the keeper of supplies, a person that would have made sure that all this food was divvied out properly. Um, and then it says in verse 23, as he, was, he, he, he ran to his brothers, um, he wants to see what's going on with his older brothers. And it says in verse 23, as he was talking with them, Goliath, the Philistine champion from Gath, stepped out from behind his lines and shouted his usual defiance. And David heard it. Whenever the Israelites saw the man, they all fled from him in great fear. All right, so, so here's what's happening. David's, David's seen this scene set up in front of him, and David's taken aback at first. I can only imagine that as a young boy, David would have thought very highly of his older brothers. And he would have thought about how his older brothers were out just, you know, 
doing some great things for God. As, as men of the military, men of the, the armies of God, of the living God, he would have thought, man, they, their, their job is pretty awesome. I'm sure he had some, as a, as a little boy, he probably dreamed some pretty cool dreams about his, his big brothers. He maybe had a little rock set that he set up, and that was his, his toy soldiers in that day. And, and he set up war little scenes and battle scenes, and those were his, his strategies being thought out. Whatever the case is, there's no question that he saw his brothers and the armies of God as an unstoppable force. Why? Not because of them as men, but because because they had God on their side. So when this behemoth of a man comes out spouting about God and everybody else runs away, David starts asking the question, what's going to be done for the person who shuts this man's mouth? He's not scared one bit because he trusts God. Now, his brothers think he's naive. Uh, They think he's stupid, right? They try to run him off a little bit. But he's neither naive nor stupid. No, David is overwhelmingly confident, right, in the one he serves, in the God he serves, the God that has proven himself time and time again to him personally and to the people of God and the stories that he would have heard as a young child of how God had, had showed himself to the Israelites. So David is then ushered into the presence of King Saul. Now, we know this of Saul just a few chapters earlier in 1 Samuel in chapter 9. It says that Saul was a handsome young man, as could be found anywhere in Israel, and he was a head taller than anyone else. Okay, so, so was Saul as big as Goliath? No. But was he, a, was he a pretty tall guy? Was he a pretty big man? Absolutely. Was he a man that was supposed to be the king that the Israelites had so wanted? Yeah. Was he the one that should have been following God and leading his people and helping them to see that they can trust him? Absolutely. But Saul was like many of us, uh, called to do great things for God, but, but lacking a trust, lacking an assurance that God would see him through. With a forgotten faith, he was living in fear. And now in verse uh, 32, it says this, David said to Saul, let no one lose heart on account of this silly scene. Your servant, I, I'll go find him. Saul replied, you're not able to go up against this Philistine and fight him. You're only a young man, and he has been a warrior from his youth. Was, was Saul protecting David in that moment, or was he saving face, right? Was he scared for David's life, or was he embarrassed that a little shepherd boy had more courage than he did as a man that was, was supposed to be a warrior, was supposed to be leading his people, Now, David shares with him his confidence. In verse 37, we hear it said like this, The Lord, who rescued me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear, he'll rescue me from the hand of the Philistine. He'll deliver me from this giant. Saul then proceeded to try to put on the armor of his armor onto uh, David. Right Now, if if Saul was a big guy, and we know that David wasn't at that time, he was a, a little shepherd boy, this armor probably looked pretty silly on him. And David says, I, I can't do this. I can't fight like this. But like Jesus came as a baby in the most unexpected way, David went to battle with a nine-foot-plus giant looking like the shepherd boy that he was. And for 40 days and for 40 nights, giant, a giant, Goliath, had taunted. And the most unexpected of heroes came in this little shepherd boy. You see, the, the rescuer had come for the people of God. 
Our rescue has come. Jesus is our David. This is the wonder of Scripture. You do understand this, right? This isn't just an accident that this happened. The the Old Testament is all about pointing us to Christ the Savior. It wasn't like, well, that plan didn't work. Let me institute this plan. This was setting up the the scene for Christ. And, And Christ is our David. Like David, our rescuer, the Messiah, Christ Jesus, didn't come as a powerful conquering king that everybody expected. All right? He didn't come as the warrior that was going off into battle. He didn't come as some sort of political force that everybody thought that he should have been. Instead, he came as a baby in a manger. Actually, the book of Isaiah prophesies about that. It says this in Isaiah 53. He grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. Nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain. Like one from whom people hide their faces, he was despised and we held him in low esteem. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering. Yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions and he was crushed for our iniquities. Now maybe you're thinking, well, time out here. Are you saying that we've had this story wrong all along? Because you know how a typical preacher preaches this message, right? He tells you what? That you're David, right? That you need to go into battle. And he'll, he'll talk about how the five stones symbolize some sort of character and trust and this and that. There's nothing wrong with preaching it that way. There's nothing wrong with understanding that we, like David, can find our confidence in God and we should go into the battles of life. It's true that the story of David's courage and his willingness to trust God for deliverance over the giant should relate to our stories, right? There's been plenty of books and uh, movies that have been made off of this about us facing impossible odds and facing our giants. But truth be told, I mean, you can try hard. You can work your darndest to fix all your problems, to overcome whatever it is in your life. But until you understand that it's only through the power of Christ displayed in the finished and victorious work of Christ, you will fight aimlessly with no prevail. Have you caught the scripture that we've read over the last few weeks in that video? It's it's found in Ephesians chapter 2. It says, as for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. That's, that's saying that we were, we were taunted by our giants. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ. You see, even when we were dead in our transgressions, it is by grace that you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ, and he seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus, in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace that you have been saved through faith. Jesus is the David of our story. In his book, uh, Giglio writes this. He says, Jesus is the David of the story of David and Goliath. Jesus is the giant killer. Does that fact not wake you up? Hello? 
We are not David. You are not David. I am not David. Jesus is David. Jesus fights the battles for us. Jesus steers down the face of impossible odds. Jesus takes up the sling. Jesus selects the five stones. And Jesus takes aim at the giant. And the giant falls because of the work of, of Jesus. Your giant is dead. Goliath has fallen. He has. Your addiction has been defeated in Christ. Your anxiety has been defeated in Christ. Your need for approval has been defeated in Christ. Your pride has been defeated in Christ. Your, you fill in the blank. Whatever it is, it has been defeated in Christ. So why do we sin then? That's, that's the question. And because sin is our flesh trying to take control, right? Heroin, alcohol, weed, food, porn, whatever your drug of choice is, in which really any sin is your drug of choice, it's your desire for control. It's, it's, it's a desire to be approved of, to feel loved, um, to run away from your inadequacies, to feel adequate. From the first sin into, in the garden to the last sin that you or I committed, it's all about control. But as you all know, that the drugs, the things of this world, the giants in our life, they leave us unfulfilled, right? I mean, the sex outside of the bounds of marriage doesn't fulfill us. The cheap high uh, doesn't leave us the way we thought it would. It leaves us empty. And the next time, what, what happens? It asks for, for more, right? Instead of two, let's take three. Instead of thousands of extra in the, the bank account, I need tens of thousands of extras in my bank account. Instead of uh, uh, an extra, a fun car, I need a car and a motorcycle. Instead of this or that, it's, it's one thing after another after another. It's saying, I need this and I need this. It, it taunts us. So if Christ has defeated our giant, why, do we, why does it still taunt us? Because we don't trust Christ with our daily life. Giglio says it like this in the book. He says, we say, God, thanks, thanks for saving me, God. God, thanks for sanctifying me, but I'm good now. I've got it from here. Thanks anyways. God, I can do this on my own. If we truly want to change, then we need to understand our dependency on the all-sufficiency of Jesus Christ. Our change is more about trusting and less about trying. So the next time you say to yourself, I just need a couple of this, this drink to, to, well, to loosen myself up, right? Social drinking, that's that idea that it loosens me up, it makes me feel better, but you know that it'll lead to, to something more. Well, know this, that, that God can be sufficient in your need, and he can loosen you up just enough. He can, he's made you a social being for a purpose. He can be strong when, when you are weak. Or the next time that fear wells up in your mind and the panic strikes a blow into you and you feel like there's no hope when anxiety overwhelms you, know that God's not overwhelmed. He's not anxious. He's, he's fine. He's going to see you through this. The next time you, you want to fulfill yourself with the corruption of sex through pornography or immorality, Ask God to be your fulfillment in that moment. The, the next time you think, well, just a new car, a new house, or just some sort of new pleasure, that's going to help me find some peace in my life. Press into God and ask him to, to find your contentment in him alone. Jesus didn't, didn't save us from our sins, though, and then run back into heaven and watch us 
be tormented and taunted. He, he, didn't, do, he didn't do that, that work for us to, to go back into that place and to see us taunted by these things. You see, Jesus instead runs into battle for us. He fights our battles for us, and we can trust him with everything we could ever need. Now, David's story continues in verse 48, saying, As the Philistine moved closer to attack him, David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet him. Christ, like David, is not sitting back. He's instead charging forward on your behalf. He says in verse 49, he reaching into his bag, he he took out the the stone and he slung it and struck the Philistine on the forehead. And the stone sank into his forehead and he fell face down on the ground. So here in that place, this place that was called the Valley of Elah, this, this beautiful place had become this epic battlefield. It had become the place of God's, of God's victory. Christ's victory happened not in the valley, but on the hillside just outside of Jerusalem in a place that is known as Golgotha, a place known as the place of the skull. It was a place of death. And it was there that Christ ran headlong into battle for us. In Mark chapter 15, verses 37 through 38, it says this, with a loud cry, Jesus breathed his last. As Jesus is on the cross. It says, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And I love that second half of this, uh, of this verse, 38. The cur- curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. You know, the temple curtain would have separated what is known as the, the Holy of Holies. That was the place where the presence of God in the Old Testament was to have dwelt. And that it was only through, um, through sacrifice that once a year a priest could enter the the Holy of Holies, to go inside of the, the temple curtain. But in this moment, the temple curtain was, was split from top to bottom, as if God reached down in that moment and ripped it himself. Because of Christ's death, we were brought back into a right relationship. So that allows God to now live within us through the Holy Spirit, that we can commune with God. It was like this. That was the Goliath moment. That was the stone in my hand, stone in his forehead, and the Goliath's fall. And that was Christ's moment for us, saying sin and death has been defeated. So what now? Well, we need to proclaim that victory. We need to be a people that would live victoriously. In, in 51 of chapter 17 this morning, it says, David ran and stood over him. He stood over the giant. He took hold of the Philistine sword and he drew it from the sheath after he had killed him and he cut off his head with the sword. Now, what's up with this morbid scene that's taking place here? David chopping off the head of the, of the giant of Goliath. It's even more weird because he's already dead. It said that after he had killed him. So he's already dead. And why does he need to wallop off the head? You see, just as Christ destroyed our giant and our sin by his death, the giant was down, Goliath was finished, he was not breathing, he was dead, but, but he wallops off his head. Then he picks it up and he shows it to the armies of, of Israel, the God's chosen people. And they see it truly is. He has been finished off. And then what they do, they run fiercely into battle. And with a war cry and a shout, they destroy the Philistine army. 
Jesus, the night before he was betrayed, instituted what we call is as the Lord's Supper or communion. I want you to take a, a minute to think about what Christ did on the cross. Jesus took the cross, a sign of torture, and he turned it into a sign of strength, right? Some of you right now have a necklace on your neck that, that represents a, the cross, and you think about that as a glorious thing. We, we have it right here in our room, and we, we might look at that as a place to pray at, to, to, to be reminded of the strength of God. You, you probably have it on your wall somewhere. I mean, it, it's something that is it's something that's adorned with jewels, and it looks nice. It's, it's a beautiful thing. We've made the cross a beautiful thing. But you understand what, what we're doing in that moment? That would be like me coming up here with a necklace that was actually a noose and wearing it and thinking, look at this. This is beautiful. That would be us, like us standing up an electric chair behind me and saying, oh, look how pretty that is, or hanging a, a, a needle around our neck um, for lethal injection as if that is something that is beautiful. Christ took something that was so morbid and he makes it he makes it marvelous. Just like he takes our lives that were subject to death, something that was so morbid and he makes it beautiful. He takes us from hell to hope. So the night before his death on the cross, Jesus what did he do? He took bread and he broke it and he said, "This represents my body." And then he took a cup and he said, this represents my blood. That sounds a little morbid as well. My body and my blood, and I'm going to remember you every time I, I eat bread and I drink this cup of juice. I'm going to think about what you did. This is Jesus's hacked off, bloody head moment. And he said, for the, the rest of the time that this earth will be, I want you to, whenever you get together as the people of God, I want you to remember this. To remember my body and my blood that was given for you. But this isn't a morbid thing. This is a moment in which we get to be reminded, just like the Israelites were when they they saw that head of the giant, that the victory has been won. This is the moment that we get to say that, that Christ has seen us through death and he has conquered that. And because of him, we now get to live. This is a celebration, a moment of victory. And that's, I think, why he instituted it for us to do. Anytime that we meet together to remember him by breaking that bread and taking that juice to say, gosh, we've been victorious in Christ. Would you pray? You know, our life's central aim is to enjoy our great God and to try to glorify him, to live victoriously in Christ. David, David was not a perfect man. He was known, right, we know in scripture as a man after God's own heart. Christ was the full representation of God's heart, of God's grace and mercy and love for you and me. Christ, well, Christ was a, a perfect man. And God loved us so much that he gave us Christ, the son of God, the perfection of the law, the sinless God in the flesh who then died in our place. And it is by him alone that we are victorious. You see, when you accept Christ, you, you say things like, I'm going to make him the, the Lord and the Savior of my life. It's, it's easy to accept him as Savior, right? To say, come on, I grace and mercy that we've been given. But to make him Lord is to say, I'm going to trust him going to allow him to fight the battles for me. And when, when my flesh is weak, I will turn to him for strength. Goliath must fall in your life. You know, years later, David um, wrote what we know, know as Psalm 23. 
We believe it was at a time in which uh, he had taken on the mantle of king. Um, He had seen a lot of different things in his life at this point. There's no doubt, though, that as David looks back at his life, that this moment with Goliath would have stood out to him. Listen to what he says in Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd and I lack nothing. He makes me lie down in green pastures and he leads me beside quiet waters. He refreshes my soul and he guides me along the right path for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the darkest of valleys, even though I might face some giants, right, is what he's saying there, I will fear no evil for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. He's saying in that moment, you sit me down and you show me that you're gonna fight the battle for me. You anoint my head with oil and my cup overflows. Surely goodness and love will follow me all the days of my life and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. (laughs) I will be victorious, is what he's saying. David was victorious. Christ was victorious. For us in this room, who have put our hope, our faith, our trust in Christ, you are victorious. And for those of you who aren't, the invitation is open. It's always there. Come and take on that grace and that mercy and come and make him the Lord of your life, trusting him for all that you need and he will see you through when your flesh is weak he will be strong Goliath must fall would you pray with me this morning God um, I thank you so much for this opportunity and God I pray that we uh, would be a people that live victoriously we love you and we say all this in Christ's name